0: Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for walking solomon through this book and that we get to walk along with him in his journey lord we pray that uh you put away any foolishness and um, help us to serve you and honor you today and in worship in word and deed in jesus name amen 316 the moreover here moreover connects with the preceding confession in verse 14 I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Fred Bartholomew says that injustices cause Solomon to question that confession. Time and place are the two great coordinates of life. And in verse 16, we move from time to place. The law courts are the place where justice finds its appropriate time. But Kohalet, the preacher Solomon, observes the opposite. So the problem is that Solomon believes injustice makes nonsense of the Lord's plan. Now we've already discussed how certainly the fall of man caused a a reordering of creation things turned upside down by the curse justice is intended to punish evil and reward good and maintain righteousness but we saw the opposite of that with abel his name actually habel vanity in the hebrew his life cut short no children whereas the evil cain who murdered him flourished and had many children and material success. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Charles Bridges says, like with Solomon here, a thoughtful mind is often exercised on the apparent inequalities of divine government, a stumbling block to men of reason, obviously citing to 1 Peter. We've all heard the questions about God's injustice or lack of control over this world. Can you tell us what some of those questions are that you've heard or things that, that we've pondered? How can God let a child suffer? Good. How can God let a child suffer? It's hard to answer somebody about Phuket, Thailand, from 2005. with a tsunami where over 100,000 people died in one day. It's hard to answer somebody who doesn't believe God or believe in God. How does a non-Christian treat... Thousands of people being killed in an instant in a tsunami or other natural disaster. Evil seemingly triumphing over good, injustice over justice. And why doesn't God save everyone? People are tempted to think that God is not in control, or worse, that God is evil. The time in judgment in verse 17, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work, links back to his confession that I read a moment ago in verse 14. But it indicates why he finds God's order of creation so problematic. With the confessional response of 14, God has a time and a judgment in which the problems of injustice and evil in the world will be resolved. But this is a radically different approach to his response in verses 18 and 19. Solomon meditates on both responses. 18 and 19. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. And this is his enigmatic response, another uh, translation of Hebel, vanity, a mystery. His observation, which is what he's been doing in Ecclesiastes up to this point, observing, I I saw, I I heard, shows him that everything is mysterious, such as some of the questions we we just handled. But this asserts that God is a cruel tester, a cruel examiner, whose purpose is to remind us that we're only animals. Solomon here ponders both of these. And his problem is that if we're no better than animals, will there ever be a time for judgment? Now, we know after the resurrection comes the judgment, an event pictured in the Old Testament as a victory of the Messiah over all of Israel's enemies, but described in the New Testament more judicially a spiritual work of Christ in which he judges and sentences in accord with the law God gave. Verses 20 through 22. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? I love this quote from Michael Eaton, one of the commentators, all go to one place, all are from the dust and all return to dust. Dust and breath are not a stable combination. Habel, a breath, a vapor, a brevity, and insubstantiality. In verse 21, we see an ignorance of uh, Solomon professed as to what happens to humans after death. But in verse 21, he does raise the possibility that spirits have a different destination. Perhaps the ESV, Eastern, the uh, English Standard Version, is better. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? And in 12.7 towards the end of solomon's journey he speaks of the spirit returning to god the spirit to god and the body to dust but from his observation at this point it's hard to know verse 22 if god is sovereign in earthly events as we saw in the beautiful poem to start chapter three to everything there is a season time for every purpose under heaven a time to be born in a time to die, and, of course, everything in between as the poem went on and on. If each of these events has a purpose, even in allowing injustices, but he holds our ultimate destiny in in his hands... then the attitude of the wise should be a joyful confidence in the Lord. We pursue our earthly responsibilities and we enjoy the, God, the, the good that God brings. Now in chapter 4, Solomon turns to our duty to others, our neighbors, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Fred Bartholomew points out four problem areas that Solomon sees in chapter four, or or four blessings also uh, that community brings our neighbors. In verses one through three, the problem of oppression. In verses four through six, rivalry as the motivation for work. In verses seven to twelve, isolation and work and life and that's where towards the end of that section there are some some good ideas some positive things that come about from community and at the end 13 to 16 the problem of government and there it's such a comprehensive picture of life here in chapter four much as we got in that poem in verse three that it signifies again Solomon is a scientific explorer. Solomon has a broad range for his exploration, and he is concerned with all of life under the sun. David Gibson says, how are we doing? That's we, not me. If you live in a way that the people beside you are your dominant focus, your waking concern, then you will find happiness. The desire to get ahead of the neighbor rather than living gladly with the responsibilities that he or she places upon us is the focus of chapter 4. Let me ask you, what could be some of the responsibilities our neighbor places upon us? Yes, Phil? You're fine. One more time. Our yard tidy yes good keeping our yard tidy what is that being respectful some people do get bent out of shape uh, about how other neighbors houses are doing because it might devalue their own real estate by five dollars or something if you don't mow your lawn um, anyone else responsibilities our neighbors put on us <laughs> Good point. Good point. And thank you, Phil, for taking that literally. Uh, sure. We know who our neighbor is. Everybody. Yeah. Well, I would say the response that it takes time. Mm. Time to do what? It takes time. It takes time for a lot, anything, any. I mean, the demands, whether it's just maintaining a friendship. Um, if you do have care that you need to help take care of, like food, or um, driving somebody somewhere, or whatever. But sure, time to serve our neighbor. To me, I mean, the time is bigger to me than the actual thing. Okay. The time is bigger than maybe the actual task we have to do for the neighbor, because that's our time, right? self-sacrifice and where would we be without christ's self-sacrifice all right chapter four then i returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun and look the tears of the oppressed but they have no comforter on the side of their oppressors there is power but they have no comforter Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive, yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun the word all here all the oppression means it was pervasive in society at the time we could imagine it's it will be till the end of time Oh the tears of the oppressed means horror, pain, and relentlessness. Power in the hand of the oppressor and no one to comfort. And no one to comfort is repeated a second time. It reinforces the pity and the hopelessness of it. Solomon describes the horror of what he has seen and moves to his conclusion, but he offers no solutions at this point. Remember, this is Solomon's journey and we're only somewhere in the middle of it. And he has continued his experimentation, his observing and reporting on what he sees under the sun. I saw all the oppressions, is what it says in the, in the ESV. And all he sees is horror, a time for oppression, as with the other times in the poem in chapter 3. It is yet another time appointed by the decree of God, Solomon understands plainly that it is a season of sin under the sun, but fully for what purpose God only knows. God who in 311 makes everything beautiful in its time. And in 315, he will settle accounts in due time because humans bear responsibility for their sins. This is the same word for oppression, in Proverbs fourteen thirty one, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his Maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. Ezekiel twenty two six and seven, look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you, you have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. The foreigner. In you they have mistreated the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. In verses 2 and 3, Solomon praises the dead and the unborn, especially since they have not seen what Solomon saw in all the oppression. Solomon drives home the under the sun viewpoint, sorrow making him suicidal. His eyes are filling with oppression, but never full, as we saw in eight, that the eye is never satisfied with seeing. Job in Job 3 said, similarly, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. Did you hear that? No light, blackness. Job didn't want to see it any longer either. But when we close our eyes tight, how will we see God's hand and his deliverance? Can you name some examples of oppression? From the Old Testament? Certainly Israel and Egypt. Okay. Israel under their taskmasters in Egypt? Prophets had a lot to say about it. Israel's experience in Babylon. Listen to Exodus 1 for characteristics of oppressors. <clears throat> now there arose a king, a new king, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Folks, that's oppression. Oppression. Not good business. Which is why the Old Testament condemns usury, corrupts weights and measures. Yeah, we're we're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In our business practices. But let's examine them all. Deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. Another characteristic of the oppressor. Suppressing the Creator's command of the children of Israel to be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict. That's cruelty. To afflict them with burdens. That's relentless. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, more cruelty. And they made their lives bitter. What was the point of making sure they made the Israelites' lives bitter? Subjugate them. To subjugate them. Anyone else? <clears throat> to make them despair of hope, perhaps? With hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service, in which they made them serve, was with rigor. That is total compulsion. In Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Total compulsion, no rest, no energy to resist. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Economic oppression. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced simply unreasonable. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry. Cruelty? Saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Economic oppression. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? The leader's beaten to chop the head off of any resistance. And don't think for a moment that oppression is only assaulting, maiming, killing, strangling, starving, stealing. Given that Jesus said the sixth commandment forbidding murder extends to those who would murder someone by their words alone, even in their own heart and their thoughts and unrighteous anger. People, government actors or individuals must know that we are all made in the image of God and it is much a sin for someone to demean an image bearer in word and thought as it is to just go ahead and kill them. We must never excuse mockery or derision in ourselves or in our, in our demeaning speech to any person unless we have forgotten as Solomon learned in Ecclesiastes 2 in his royal experiment that we are not God and we may not damn anyone. Jesus said in Matthew 20, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, uh, not what he said, I'm sorry. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Look at the oppression that was about to happen to this individual. And the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock him and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. But do we forget how the mocking of the Messiah was a major part of his humiliation and suffering? What were some of the ways in which he was mocked? The crown and the purple robe. The scepter, the stick. The reed, which they then beat him with. What did they say? Prophesy. Prophesy. Good one. I hadn't thought of that. Hail, king of the Jews, as they bowed before him. A murderer set free in his stead. More mockery. Slapping his face. He saved others. Let him save himself. Go ahead, Tim. Yes what was Turning his words over just as we said, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. These are just words. He tr- now, now going after his father in that relationship, he trusted in God. let God deliver him now if he will have him. spit upon. In any culture, spitting upon someone is understood. You're not even a man. Go ahead. He was lied about. about. False witnesses? Sure. You're not even a man. The saying, I am a man, was once a cry in this country. used by garbage men whose buddies weren't able to go home to their wives and children because they were being gobbled alive by unsafe garbage trucks. Every person bears the image of God. Consider the exiled Jewish nation oppressed in Babylon and don't say they were just mocking words. Psalm 137 By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away, captives, asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song? In a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. I do not remember you. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Now, ironically, Israel's captivity came about due to their own oppression. Zechariah 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint. And this was God's response. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned. For they they made the pleasant land desolate. They made it. It's their fault. It is their human responsibility for their sin. As Israel oppressed, so they were oppressed in turn. Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge... I would imagine with what oppression you oppress, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What are some of the temptations to sin facing oppressed Christians that they must be watchful to resist? Remember the Eritrean church that we supported, our our denomination supported in East Africa? Yeah, saw this Eritrean, Eritrean Christians mark 20 years of church closures. Christians in Eritrea mark 20 years of state persecutions this month. The East African dictatorship—I don't know when this was written. Actually, the East African dictatorship shut down most of its churches in May 2002, outlawing every religion except Sunni Islam, Eritrean Orthodox, Roman Catholicism, and the Catholic, and the Lutheran Church. Uh, maybe that's the OPC is not there. Maybe we need to be doing better with helping the people, but uh, Eritrea is like a giant prison. The country is filled with jails. It's like North Korea. What are some of the temptations to sin facing oppressed Christians they must be watchful to resist? Denying God. Denying God fretting that Looking around at all the evil, sure. Hating, your Hating their enemies, Matthew five forty four to 48. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, God's reminding us that we're all image bearers. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Are we citizens of this country, of this state, residents of this region, neighbors to our neighbors? Or are we just greeting our brethren only? Do we plug our eyeballs into the media and spend time feasting on news feeds? Potentially letting fools, rather than the Redeemer, tell us who our neighbor is. Charles Bridges said, And yet how very little do we realize the sorrow of others, either because they are at a distance from us, or because we have ourselves no intelligent and experimental acquaintance with the particular pages of the history of sorrow. He wrote that in the mid-1800s. Maybe Solomon's methodical, scientific, and observational examination of life isn't totally vain. We must know our neighbor. Just as it's been said, know thy enemy. Perhaps another temptation, discontentment in your oppression, being oppressed. Philippians four eleven to 13, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I would add, both to be op- well, we don't want to go there. Um, both to be oppressed and to oppress. Yeah, we don't want to go there. All right, sorry. Um, teach me to ad lib. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when is it time to fight? I don't have to tell you you're going to stand up for your wife when the oppressor walks in the door and assaults her. You know what you should do. But when to stand against a system of oppression, I don't know. But God is the Lord. Case by case basis. While considering the whole of some of the verses I've just read. The New Testament is clear. There will be many trials for Christians. Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Referring to the wilderness wanderings of Israel before entering the promised land, 1 Corinthians 10 says, Now all these things happen to them as examples, as they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Well, the lesson to learn from the Israelites in their wanderings and in their oppression in Egypt is they cried to God and he acknowledged them. So, case by case. And remember, but for the grace, the gift of God, there go we as oppressors. A a couple chapters later, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, 21, and 22 21 and 22. Also, do not take heart to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. This is the same word for oppression in Proverbs fourteen thirty one. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. Verses 4 through 6, and we'll conclude. Again I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Verse 4. You know, Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Rivalry with the neighbor will destroy your body. But Solomon questions of human rivalry is the motivation for work. Certainly, he is generalizing and using hyperbole as he'll bring a different vision of work in chapter 9. There are other reasons to work, we know, of command to the Christian for the service of God and neighbor and for the creation to develop its potential to the glory of God. Michael Eaton observes... Toil and skill often hide the struggle for wealth, leadership, power, or status. Solomon sees below the surface a restless desire to outclass others. And what do we call that? little phrase to keep up with the Joneses. Now, when I grew up on Saturn Street, Merritt Island, yeah, we literally had Joneses living across the street. It was very traumatic. They were all so perfect and everything, but She taught at the high school. Did you know her, Mrs. Jones? What subject? I have no idea. Yeah. I just knew it was something I couldn't possibly understand. So the Joneses. These things fragment relationships. Verse five. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. We move from oppression and envy now to sloth. Charles Bridges said, this is the other side of the coin from rivalry driving work. A man pursues a right work, but his neighbor envies by those who have no heart to imitate him. It's kind of like trying to go through life on your sofa and making your judgments from, from that position. Proverbs 6, 10, 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. That's self-cannibalism. Killing themselves by starvation. Isn't there a proverb about they won't even, they'll put their hand in the dish, they'll lay it there, but they can't even get it back to their mouth. Proverbs 22, 13. The lazy man says, There is a lion outside, I shall be slain in the streets. What is your lion? Every once in a while I have to check myself at work with procrastination. Is fear keeping me from moving forward at work? Am I fearing man over God? So what is your lion? Verse six, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. this handful with quietness is the middle road between rivalry and laziness yes Phil okay when you make a, a kill an, another verse you're referring to when you make a kill deal with it immediately so it doesn't turn yes. again you're missing out on food because you didn't work Yeah, this one hand with quietness is enjoying life is from the hand of God. 2.24. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. And a gift from God, 5.19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and give it him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. I'm going to end with two lines here, quotes, because it's just wonderful, and I didn't feel like paraphrasing it, and I wouldn't do as well. So, David Gibson, quietness is a word to capture the deep well-being of those who know their place in the world content with the boundary lines of their life and able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart by living for we, not me, a servant of others instead of Lord of myself. When we stop and think about serving and loving our neighbors, it prevents two extremes, the laziness of verse 5 and the manic busyness of verse 6. Laziness is a way of hating your neighbors you have nothing to give them. The manically busy person of verse 6 masks a dissatisfaction with life because they're always working for tomorrow. Instead, why not stop and enjoy today in very real ways? Stop thinking the future will be better and easier. Stop thinking that if only things were different, you would be a better person. Live the life you have now Instead of longing for the life you think you will have, but which you really cannot control at all. When we realize there is a middle way between being lazy in the here and now and busting a gut for the future, we find tranquility. We realize that rest and peace are more important than wealth and success. One more half that size. Cred Bartholomew. Rivalry and jealousy are self-interest. But is all self-interest wrong? I would add, Philippians 2, 3 through 4, no. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. So self-interest is okay, but also to the interest of others. Back to Bartholomew. Parents and spouses are not wrong or selfish to look out for each other and their family. But when the biological family becomes an idol by which we progressively glorify ourselves, losing sight of the interest of our neighbor or the worldwide church, it may be sin. Likewise, Bartholomew cautions that businesses run amok when they assist themselves for profits at the expense of unstewardly selfishness. What are we a steward of? As with nations failing to do justice internationally, Competition is not bad, but we must distinguish between a distorted desire to be better than one's neighbor and the God-given desire to excel. Let's pray, and then I want to take a quick poll. Lord, we thank you for Solomon. We've asked all these same questions. We thank you that his journey was inspired and written by you. As every writing that's ever gone down was directed by you, the good and the bad. Lord, there is a human responsibility for our sin, nevertheless. Father, we thank you for the good gift of Christ that made a way where there seemed to be no way in the wilderness. And in that sense, Lord, help us as sinners to enter the sanctuary today and to approach it... um, prudently and wisely to guard our steps and to listen rather than to go there to speak. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the poll is, halfway through here roughly, Um, how is the question and answer format going? Any votes for helpful? If you'd raise your hand. Not helpful? It's cool. Raise your hand. Okay. Intimidating? Anybody? It's okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Me too. Okay. Thank you. God bless, and let's go worship.